Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with this week's host, Helen Hillix. I'm Todd Benton, your co-host. Today's topic, what's it like to give up everything for a calling? Do you have the courage to do that? Meet Colin Wright from Exile Lifestyle Blog and listen in as host Helen Hillix talks with him. What inspired LA Branding Studio Executive Colin Wright to get rid of everything he owned that didn't fit in a backpack and take off across the world? Find out how Colin inspired others to take on the minimalist lifestyle in pursuit of their dreams. Host Helen Hillix will interview Colin about what he has learned in the eight years of his travels and how it has changed his view of the world, people, politics, and what's important in life. How does his lifestyle relate to oneness, accountability, and mutual support? Join us as Colin shares how it feels to own nothing and to be alone as his blog readers vote on where he will live next around the world. Are you also finding the American dream is not bringing you the happiness it promised? Are you a minimalist waiting to happen? Join us for a revolutionary conversation about what life can look like if you're willing to give it all up and follow your calling. And now, here's Helen. Thank you, Todd, and welcome, Colin. We're so excited to have you. First, we're going to do just a couple of articles about news articles that we feel are interrevolutionary. The first couple I'm just going to skim over, really. Uh, one is about Michael Bloomberg offering to pay the $15 million to make up for Washington's share of the Paris Accord costs. And I'm sure everybody has heard of this already. It was in uh, Fortune magazine. It was all over the news. But I just thought it was worthy of another comment that is underscoring the reality that people are still very much in favor of the Paris Accord in spite of Trump saying that we're dropping out and that this article is saying, as many other people have, that the cities, the states, and the citizens are still behind the accord and that they are the ones that are making so many, and, and the corporate uh, structure, of course, a lot of corporations are also behind the Paris Accord, and that they are the ones that are really making the the ground-level decisions about uh, things that will affect the climate. So I thought that was a wonderful uh, reinforcement of the fact that that just one person is not in charge, that if we are all together in our efforts to to make something happen, it can still happen. And another another article, kind of this, the same thing, um, was about the California Senate just passed single-payer health care. And this is an article about how the state Senate just passed a Medicare for all bill in uh, California. And although it's a long way from being enacted, you know, they, they would have to do lots of other work to to structure it and to fund it and so forth. It's another way that uh, a state is standing up and saying we don't care what the what the country does in terms of voting to repeal certain parts of the Affordable Care Act or whatever, California is going to stand in favor of a single-payer system that offers health care for everybody. So I thought that was really an exciting step forward. And then lastly, there is an article uh, that was on CBS Evening News called Gentleman's Club Teaches Life Lessons to Elementary Students. And I love this article. It comes out of Greenville, South Carolina at Thomas E. Kearns Elementary in Greenville. There is a club for fourth and fifth graders called the Gentleman's Club. And it 
is the most sought after group of 48 fourth and fifth graders and they're not teaching you just to be a gentleman they say but they're teaching you you know how to treat other people with respect and how to build your confidence and they also say that the the um Principal Mark Adams he started the club last year, and he's talking about how it prepares the students for academics as well because it's preparation for behavior, for citizenship, and for the responsibilities that go along with taking on their academics, and that they have really turned the a lot of these kids around. It's a low-income school where almost every single student uh, qualifies for free meals, and so they, they've had a lot of confidence issues, and, and there are many quotes on the article from the children themselves about how much it has built their confidence and enabled them to get better grades and feel so much better about themselves. And I just thought it was interrevolutionary in that people, educators are coming up with such great ideas about how to offer different things in schools that will motivate kids. And in a few weeks, we're going to have someone from the Finnish uh, national Education Agency about the, uh, the the education system in Finland and how different it is from the U.S. Uh, and I'm really excited about that too. But cool. we always we always want to plug new ideas, and uh, I thought those were some great articles. So that's they might need a better news. name though. The Gentleman's Club, I know, I know it's kind of I was thinking of the strip clubs in San Diego is what <laughs> conjured in my mind. I'm like, no, no, no. Well, and the fact that it seems to be for boys only, I don't know. I, You know, they didn't go into it whether they have a, but they didn't mention having a club for girls too. But anyway, I thought it was, it, it promoted some interrevolutionary ideas of oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And that's why I chose the article. Well, maybe so, Colin can help them with rebranding. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Colin can. Okay, so Colin, first of all, let us do a, a warm, warm welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Wow. We're so happy, happy to have found you and happy to have connected. And we're excited to hear what you have to share today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'd like to start out with you telling us how Exile Lifestyle came about and what was your inner experience during that time that you made this choice? Well, if you go back in time a bit, all the way back to the halcyon days of 2009, uh, I was running a branding studio out in Los Angeles and was doing a lot of work, a lot of very challenging, at times very interesting and fulfilling work to a certain degree. But I also had the opportunity uh, around my 24th birthday, I was in my early 20s back then, and I, I had an opportunity to take a step back and to actually quite literally step out of Los Angeles, take a quick vacation up to Vancouver. And during that time, away from my typical day, my typical lifestyle, where I was sleeping four hours a night and working 100 to 120 hour weeks and oh my gosh. Li- living with my girlfriend, but never seeing her because we were both running our businesses and pursuing these great big goals that were very monetary in, in metric in, in right. how we measured them. Uh, I was able to look at that and say, wow, you know, I'm successful according to a very specific metric. And it's the metric that most of us have of success. It's what we are handed down from very well-meaning people throughout our entire lives. But 
I wasn't actually moving toward my priorities, which was trying to grow as an individual, trying to learn more about myself, trying to learn more about the world, trying to experience more things. And I had this vague notion that I would make a bunch of money and then retire young and then go out and live. But (laughs) I had that moment of clarity where I realized, wow, you know, even if I do that, even with if I really succeed in a great big way and make a bunch of money and I'm still relatively young, no matter how much money I make, I can't get my 20s back and I can't get my 30s back or my 40s or my 50s or however long it takes. I cannot get that time back. And that's time that then is not uh, accumulating value from life investment, from going out into the world and learning things and seeing things and meeting people and trying new foods and listening to new music. I'm not not able to benefit from all of that while I'm sitting there plugging away, trying to add another digit to my bank account. And I, I recognized basically at that moment that I had certain things that I told myself were priorities, but I was showing uh, very different priorities with my actions. Those things were not lining up. And the the exile lifestyle thing, which is the name of my blog, emerged during a period between when I realized that and a deadline that I set for myself four months in the future after that road trip up to Vancouver, where I basically told myself in that amount of time, you better figure out what you're going to do because at the end of that four months, you are leaving. You are going to figure out how to make money, how to, how to pay for plane tickets, and you're going to start traveling. You're going to start living now because if you wait you know what's down that path now that you've allowed yourself to acknowledge that. How, just this is kind of an aside question, but how did your girlfriend uh, at that time (laughs) respond to this, you know, huge dramatic change? You know, it was actually her in a lot of ways. She was the one that sparked it. We we came to that realization at the same time on that road trip that, she was doing kind of the same thing. She was an actress, uh, particularly stage acting, but she was running a business to make money. There's not as much money in stage acting, and she was putting that off. And we, we both had this realization, but she was the first one brave enough to say something about it. And then we both admitted to each other that we had these things that we wanted to do, but we were staying together for the lifestyle. It's like staying together for the kids. You stay in a terrible relationship, and everybody suffers a little bit more as a result in certain ways. That's kind of what we were doing with our lives, our social lives and our professional lives with the kids that we had. And we were maintaining this lifestyle that wasn't bad. It was actually really good. But it wasn't great, and it was standing in the way of these things that we both wanted to do that required us to go in different directions. So actually, the the pinnacle, the the apex of that plan at the end of that four months was a breakup party where we got all our friends together and had a lovely time and celebrated a really wonderful relationship that needed to change into something else. It needed to be converted into a friendship if we were going to be able to go do these things that we passionately wanted to do without coming to resent each other as, as the person standing in the way of that. Wow, I, I love all of that. I love everything you shared, and I'm so glad I asked that question because, <laughs> you know, I the idea of, I'm a marriage and family therapist by trade. That's what I do for a living, and I love the idea of staying together for the kids but translating that into the kids are equal, your home, your big closet full of clothes, the paintings on your wall, you know, all of those things that sometimes do substitute for kids. And we do stay together for those things and the, the lifestyle. And, and what a wonderful awakening again. What a great inner revolution to be able to say we both realize this is what is true and let's not do it. 
it, it was a very fortunate thing that we had that opportunity to acknowledge it to each other because neither one of us wanted to be the first to acknowledge it because then all the plans you made come crumbling down just as a result right. of that. And and that's a really difficult thing to face, all that potential stuff that you thought was going to happen and that you were planning on. But right. I, I think in a lot of cases, people do know these things and they just worry yes. that they're going to be the only one who's feeling that way. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. It is so true. So, so many couples say, you know, he wanted to break up, but I didn't. And I always say, really? <laughs> <laughs> really you know you could be perfectly happy in a relationship where the other person didn't really want to be there you know so I, I I agree with you so much there too so let's take it to the next step and tell us about the mechanics of how you actually did it and what came next well part of it was writing the blog and that allowed me the opportunity you know starting a blog is something that you do when you don't really know what you're doing I think in a lot of cases it's a way to kind of sound out all of those things that you've been thinking about but presenting it to somebody else ostensibly as an excuse to get to know what's going on inside your own head a little bit better so there was that component of it where I was reaching out to new people and interacting with all of these new people who had very different concerns than I'd always had and very different perspectives Uh, But it also gave me the opportunity to question my business model, what I was doing. I I was making a whole lot of money out in L.A., but I was also spending a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I I had this theory that if I reduced my expenses, I might be able to reduce the amount of money that I needed to earn while still surviving. And thankfully, that proved to be true. (laughs) I still make substantially less money than I made back then, but I, I would argue I get more value out of it. But that was part of it, was trying to reframe things so that I could say, well, what do I actually need? What's actually important? How do I actually want to be spending my time? And my priority was being able to get out and and educate myself, essentially, to see more of the world, to become a little bit more streetwise instead of just book smart, and to liberate a lot of time to spend more of my time, energy, and resources and on things that I actually thought were important as opposed to just client work. So I reduced my business, my branding studio, down to kind of a brand consultancy that I could run and have just a couple of clients. I could run it from my laptop. And I reduced my expenses dramatically. I reduced my possessions <laughs> very dramatically uh, just to what I could fit into a carry-on bag and a laptop bag that I could slip under a, a plain seat. And uh basically made sure that everything was portable in that way so that I could continue to move around. I I still didn't know at first exactly what that would look like because at this point, aside from that trip up to Canada, I had never left the country. So my passport was essentially blank. My experience with this type of thing was also quite blank. So I had a lot of uh, time to make up for, a lot of lost time to make up for. But the idea was to keep things very flexible and malleable so that I could uh, pivot on a dime when I learned I was doing something incorrectly, which it turned out would be, you know, a whole lot of pivots in the following years and continuing today. But the idea was to make sure that I didn't have so much momentum behind every movement that it would be difficult to change things the way that it was back uh, when I was making those initial changes. I, I like what you're saying about the not making sure that there's n- not enough inertia basically at any given point that that sticks you somewhere you don't want to be or you shouldn't be would would you agree with the uh, characterization of this as some sort of calling you know that you were called to do this and and how do you 
conceptualize that? Do you conceptualize that as a spiritual calling or a or how? I I don't think that I would. I'm I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I do think that you could frame it that way. And and I, I don't think I'd call it a calling necessarily either. I think that we all have the potential to do so many things and you have the every single person has the opportunity to invest themselves in an infinite number of different possible passions if they choose to do so. And some of them will come more easily. Some of them will just kind of appear almost as if from whole cloth. And maybe it was handed down from your parents or something that you're just naturally good at and you enjoy it. You enjoy the repetition or the movement or the thinking or whatever. But I think you can also cultivate passions out of nothing. And as a as a result, from my perspective, I think that would mean like the world is your calling and you choose which calling to answer to a certain degree. It's like a, a spectrum where, you know, everybody's seeing the same light and then you choose which color to focus on. To me, that's, it seems more like that where um, at that point I was choosing a different part of the spectrum to focus on. And over the, you know, the eight years since then, it's changed quite dramatically too. I've changed the way that I've done things. I've changed the way I've made money. It's just deciding where to to focus and where to put more of your time and energy and effort at any given moment. Well, yeah, I, I don't want to get into a whether this definition or that definition. I'm, I'm thinking very much in terms of what you're saying, that in terms of the oneness, the oneness being the infinite possibilities that are available, uh, we are drawn to one or, or another aspect of that uh, potential, right? And that's what you're saying, is you chose to energize this particular aspect of, of your potential. And, and how has it changed over time? You said, I understand that you are making money differently. You're making money now primarily from your books, right? Yeah, yeah. I was really fortunate actually to have a, an uncomfortable situation for a while where I was trying to work with my clients in L.A., but I was living in New Zealand, like 20 time zones away. And at the time, uh, it's improved quite substantially since then. But uh, at the time, the internet there was just tragically bad. It's a near perfect country in every way. But at the time, the internet was just so debilitating. You you could barely find a dial-up connection. And so trying to have a wow. Skype conversation <laughs> or send an image file or do anything, even Starbucks there, if you wandered into a Starbucks, well known for their free Wi-Fi, it right. was like $10 to send a, an email. Um, wow. It was so debilitating. So I couldn't do my work. I couldn't work with clients in any reasonable way. So I took a look at some other stuff that I had done. And I used to write for my city newspaper and my school newspaper. And I was writing for the blog. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, I could take that. I could write like a really long blog. It'll be like a book. And maybe I could sell that. Maybe somebody would pay me for some of these things if I provide enough value through that different medium. Uh, I've never sold products before. I've always been a services provider, but maybe that would work. And fortunately, I had the incentive to try because I had no choice really than to try some other things. Uh, and, and so I invested some time in that and it turned out that enough people bought it, that it, it wasn't enough to replace my income then, but I figured with enough additional effort and putting in the time and learning the many, many, many things that I didn't know yet, I could probably make it work. And, and fortunately that proved to be the case. Thank goodness. Um, have you ever 
regretted the lifestyle itself since you decided on this exile lifestyle? I, I mean, there must be a downside to it. You know, and you, I know in one of your blogs you talked about, about the loneliness. I think you were in, I don't know, Buenos Aires or somewhere like that. And you were talking about the fantasy of, you know, meeting a woman on the street and falling. <laughs> but that most of the time that's not what happened. And you end up, you know, having just uh, temporary connections with people and moving on. So I'd like to hear about that, the painful part of the lifestyle. Sure. Yeah. And there's trade-offs with any decision that you make. And, and Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. W- whether you choose something more conventional and you take the, the more pre-prescribed route, um, there's an opportunity cost in that. And then, and then there's an opportunity cost in this type of lifestyle as well. Um, to me, I, I've never regretted it. That was by far the best choice I've ever made in my entire life. And I'm just so thankful. I, I can imagine the route my life would have taken otherwise because I could see where I would have ended up 40 years in the future in some mm-hmm. of the men- mentors that I had out there who were mm-hmm. incredibly wealthy, well-respected, prestigious billionaires, essentially, who wanted me to come be their protege and also incredibly unhappy people. Um, and, and that simply wasn't for me. And, and looking what I, looking at what I get to do now, um, there, there's not nearly as much money in it, but I make enough to, to do what I want to do. And, and I have the people in my life that I want to have in my life, and I can spend my time how I want to spend it. So the trade-offs are worth it. But there are trade-offs, and part of that is a certain type of loneliness that comes up from time to time. When you arrive in a, it could just be a new city, but it could also be a completely new culture. And consequently... Uh, I, I remember it very, <laughs> there was a dramatic version of this when I first moved to Central Europe. I moved to Romania, to Cluj-Napolka, and the Slavic culture is not so big on smiling. And <laughs> <laughs> so like being an American, this, this is like a stereotype of Americans in that part of the world where they're smiling all the time. So they're probably trying to trick you. So if you smile at people, they think that you are suspicious. And so for me, just wandering around town trying to make friends with people, there was this little corner shop that sold like some fruits and vegetables on on the corner of my neighborhood. And I just... I dedicated myself to making friends with the guy who ran it with his family because the guy sneered at me every time I walked in the door. I could not make a connection. And I I didn't find out until later, several months in, that they don't really have an in-between. There is like strangers who are suspicious and therefore might be the enemy and you have to protect yourself against them and remain very stern. And then there's family and there's nothing in between. And about a month and a half in, something flipped over and he had seen me every day coming in there trying to make friends with him. And suddenly he was introducing me to his wife and I, they handed me their baby. And just from one day being incredibly stern and angry and making me feel incredibly unwelcome to being family. And, and so you have little moments like that sometimes where it suddenly becomes very clear. Okay. You need to, to operate differently than if you're, Living in a community, for example, where you've spent your entire life and and your friends are the same friends that you've had since elementary school, it's a very different dynamic. And you have to have very different expectations. You have to invest a whole lot more time in being personable and trying to put yourself out there. You have to become accustomed 
to being the dumbest person in the room at any given point because you, you go into the grocery store and everyone there knows what they're doing and you do not. You do not know the very simple social dynamics of buying milk at the grocery store. And you don't know if it is milk in some cases. It might be rat poison for all you know. So like the <laughs> smallest child in the room knows, knows more than you do. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that changes everything. So for me, the loneliness is an opportunity to get out there. I, I tend to be very introverted with, with certain components of my life. And so this has forced me to go out and be more extroverted and to really figure out where I connect with the community that I come into and to put a lot more focus on the relationships that I do have. Um, because when you do focus in that way, this is a, a core component of intentionality or minimalism or whatever you want to call it, that when you monotask or when you focus on very specific relationships or very specific work, you have more time, energy, and resources to spend on those things rather than spreading yourself so thin that you're not able to really apply yourself to any one of them. Mm, cool. I have a question, um, and maybe um, maybe we can get to it later. I don't know if this is in your you know things that you're thinking, Helen, but your thoughtfulness just I was wondering about your upbringing and like your parents and how you came to these questions you know I know um, you know when I was 24 I was I was very thoughtful also but I, I'm I was just curious about that and Helen you know if you want to go there sure yeah uh, my parents are wonderful <laughs> um, they We've never had a bunch of money. We were never wealthy by any means. And there's four of us kids in our family. So there was, uh, there was always a lot of, not scarcity exactly, but a lot of competition. The parents would come back from the grocery store and you'd stake out the food you wanted because if you didn't, someone else was going to get it. So there was a, a certain type of dynamic around that. But at the same time, we always had, if we wanted a book, for instance, there was always money to make sure that you had those books. So that, that was one element of it. But my, my parents were always very big on making sure that we felt that we could take risks. And I, something that I remember very specifically when I told my parents, and this was not the first crazy thing I've done. I, I started my first business when I was 19 and I, I, was, I was working like five jobs when I was dual majoring in a couple different majors in college. And like I had all these things that I was doing and I made some very decisions that from the outside probably looked very questionable multiple times in my life. <laughs> uh, but when I told them, hey, I've got this great thing going in L.A. and, you know, my girlfriend and I were living together. Things are going really well. But hey, so we're going to have this breakup party and I'm going to leave the country and I'm going to change my business completely. Um, they did not try to scare me. They did not protectively try to scare me and warn me off of this the way a lot of very well-meaning parents do. They basically said, that is very interesting. We are proud of you. And if things go sideways, you have a ticket home. Mm -hmm. And that to me perfectly represents the way that they've been with me and all of my siblings throughout our entire history. They, they've been very, very supportive. They've made sure that we know that they've got our backs, but they've also not been stifling and tried to guide us in any particular direction. You couldn't ask for more than that. Yeah, right? and that's what's really cool. You can kind of, I mean, I was just kind of feeling that in the background of what you said, like the relationship that you had, somehow that influenced your your ability to be that willing to take that risk. So that's cool. I, I just need to hear that story. And it was it was an incredible privilege too. Not everybody has that behind them. That That is something that's allowed me throughout my life to feel very comfortable taking risks compared to a lot of people, I think. So one of those things that I feel very fortunate to have. 
and are very fortunate to have. I'd like to go in a slightly different direction in that uh, I kind of touched base with you about this before the show, Colin, about the principles of the inner revolution are oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And I'd like to weave those into our conversation and begin going down that pathway and ask you if if in your travels uh, around the world uh, these past eight years, if it has changed your perspective about feeling a, a, and the experience of oneness. Uh, oneness in terms of the, of the humanity. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. that we yeah. are all that we're all alike. Essentially, that we all need love and connection and validation. That that kind of oneness. Yeah, I mean, consist. I I wouldn't even know where to start. There'd be so many different stories. Uh, we have so much more in common than we have differences, and the differences that we tend to focus on tend to be the most superficial and significant things. It's almost always these things that serve some other purpose, usually a political purpose or some other type of influential purpose where uh, somebody is trying to emphasize these differences so that they can have more control over one group or another group. Uh, But invariably, everywhere I've gone, even in places and maybe especially in places where I've been warned off and been told, oh, that's a dangerous area and everybody there is a crook and such, people will give you the shirt off their back. People will ensure, in the same way that I'm sure most listeners uh, right now would do, if you find somebody there who doesn't know what they're doing, they're from somewhere else, you would make sure that they got where they needed to go. You'd make sure that they were okay within your community. You might even go further than that. I've had perfect strangers see the confused look on my face and invite me to come have dinner with their family and They've put me up in some cases. They've connected me with their friends so they could I could find what I needed in this new place where I didn't speak the language or know anyone. Uh, just consistently throughout eight years of travel, that has been my experience. And there's been almost... I, I, I've had one time where I was... Uh, they tried to mug me in Argentina, but that was like a very <laughs> substantial difference from uh, the experience that I've had for the rest of those eight years. Well, you've got to expect some of that. That That is also in the oneness, right? <laughs> well, and, and it was a very specific situation where the TV show Friends had just arrived in syndication in Buenos Aires. And so all of these teenagers, these Argentine teenagers, were seeing these gigantic New York apartments that these people on TV were living in and wondering why they didn't have that as well. And so they all quit their jobs and started robbing people. It was a very specific like three months in time that that was happening. That is so fascinating, but it's so heartwarming to hear the stories that you're telling about, you know, perfect strangers taking you home, and it certainly underscores the reality of oneness. Um, And the other two principles of accountability and mutual support, I mean, certainly the mutual support is people taking you into their home and feeling like you are part of the oneness with them, and, and therefore, you know, we want to support you. I wonder if, if... all of the experiences that you've had around the world, Colin, have brought you to a greater sense of awareness of the accountability that we all share for each other. Um, yeah, yeah. It, so just to, as an understanding of, um, of like biological understanding, something that always seemed very poetic to me is the idea that an ecosystem that is diverse is stronger. Uh, if you have an ecosystem that only has one type of animal, that is a very weak ecosystem, 
Because if something goes wrong, if the climate shifts at all, if a disease emerges, if, if a, a type of plant goes barren for a certain season, then everything dies off. Whereas if you have a bunch of different creatures occupying the same role and you have a diversity of predators, of herbivores, of different types of plants, of seed spreaders, of pollen spreaders, etc., then everything is in a much better position to fill in the blanks if if something needs to be carried for a time because something changes. And, and to me, that's very much the case uh, with our global human community as well, that uh, one of the reasons I feel very fortunate to do this is getting to see all the different ways that that we do rely on each other and that the uh, globalized modern world is in so many different ways a great big ecosystem. And the more we can look at each other as people who maybe fill different niches at different times within that ecosystem, but also people who are incredibly important in our own survival, but we are also incredibly important to their survival, I think the better off we are. I like that that metaphor of the ecosystem and the fact that it acknowledges the the importance and it does something else that we in the inner revolution really value and that is it flattens the hierarchy. And mm-hmm. I I know that in one way you've already been talking about flattening the hierarchy in terms of importance and value in living because here are these billionaires that are are wanting you and you know what struck me too Colin is you know you're a very engaging smart young man and I'm sure that these billionaires were not only uh, wanting you to succeed to kind of puff themselves up but also because they wanted the connection you know, they were undoubtedly lonely for people who would really value them as a person. And that flattens the hierarchy there, just the acknowledgement that we need each other. And and that is so prevalent, you know, in the ecosystem perspective in that, you know, the, the herbivores are no more important than the carnivores and vice versa. You know, every single aspect is is incredibly important. Uh, not just important, but it is essential. Yeah, fundamental to the entire yeah. thing's survival. Yes, fundamental. And I, I like what you're saying, you know, using that metaphor for the way that we need to start seeing all of life on Earth is that it is fundamental. And if we don't have that accountability and mutual support and that experience of oneness and the flattening of the hierarchy is part of that, you know, we're not going to survive. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, from what you said, I'm imagining that you have come to that same conclusion, obviously, and... And did you always have that perspective, or or has it been intensified from your experiences? I always suspected something along these lines, And, and I knew just from what I'd learned about other things like, like biology and such and, and I mean, astrophysics and stuff. If you scale up or scale down, things tend to look, look very similar and on the macro and the micro. And so for me, it's, it made perfect sense that things would work that way as well. I didn't have the on the ground experience though, which is why I really wanted to get out into the world and, and uh, add some real world learning with, to go with my book learning. <laughs> I, I was aware that I had learned most of what I knew through the eyes of other people and the words of other people. And that tends to bias things in a lot of different directions. So for me, being able to go out and see this firsthand, it's it's amazing to see not just that it, it is true, but it's something that is so unbelievably true. It's amazing that 
so many people get it wrong. Uh, again, a lot of people who are trying to pit people against each other tribally for a lot of different reasons. Amen. I mean, that that's another thing that the interrevolution.org as a community is working on is supporting all different kinds of perspectives to come together. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter if you love Trump or hate Hillary or vice versa. You know, we, we have to come together and acknowledge our oneness. It's just, it's fundamentally necessary. And so many people, just as you said, because of some agenda, uh, want to pit us against one another. And we just had an event a few weeks ago called No More Divide and Conquer. Let's tell the real story. And, you know, that. so that's a, another universal truth that I think is, is gaining traction. Um, I, I don't know if you want to say anything else about that topic, about, you know, what you've, what you've learned, what you've seen socially. Um, is I, there I any... Just a, a whole lot of different consistencies in that regard. And, and I do think, too, something that is often, I think, unfairly demonized is our, our modern tools like social media that allow us to come together and the blogging platforms and Skype and all different types of tools that we have. Like so many other things, they're things that can be used to distract us and to pull us away from what's actually important and, and to turn us against each other further because they're just transmission mm-hmm. mediums like anything else right but they also give us such immense possibilities and so many of my most valuable friendships my my most valuable relationships of all kinds and my uh even just initial connections to people in a certain area have emerged as a result of twitter and instagram and these really silly things that seem very superficial on a lot of different levels but if you use them really intentionally these are tools that give us superpowers, and that, that's really amazing to me. I love that. And, of course, they really are neutral. Yes. They, they are not positive or negative, even though so many people abuse them. They really are neutral and can be used for tremendous good. You know, and it's so obvious from, you know, Facebook, for instance, and Twitter, that movements that would not have gained so much traction, like Bernie Sanders, for instance, you know, I mean, I don't think he would have become a sensation in any other time period, but because of social media, you know, and the ability to spread the information so quickly, you know, that's just one tiny example of what you're saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the same is true with a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different things that have percolated for a long time, but have not had the, uh, in a lot of cases, monetary support that they've mm-hmm. needed to, to gain, you know, cable news time or to uh, get the support of a, ma- a major candidate or a, some other major personality that controlled the airwaves and the communication channels until just recently. Right, right. I, that's a great point you're making because, again, the flattening of the hierarchy is what we're talking about. That it, you don't have to be a celebrity. You don't have to have millions of dollars. You know, it just things go viral because people resonate with them. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's another great point. I wanted to ask you what you think is the greater, the greatest, or most significant internal change that you have made over the last eight years. Oh, that's a good question. Probably a, well, 
So entrepreneurship is about solving problems and it's about looking out into the world and saying, what are the opportunities here? And when I first got into entrepreneurship, the, the more traditional way of looking at entrepreneurship is to say, what are the opportunities? How can I make money from that? Right. The, these days I tend, I, I've recalibrated that because I'm still very ambitious and I really, really want to continue to learn and to continue exposed to, my, to expose myself to new things and to try to solve problems where I can. But these days, the end goal that I'm looking for is very different. And in some cases, they might be monetary in terms of being able to, to pay the bills. But in a lot of cases, they're less about that and more about spreading a particular message or figuring out a way to help other people pay the bills or figuring out ways to, to connect people in different ways, uh, to use these tools very intentionally. And so that shift in the, the purpose I think, behind all of these things, all of these motivations and personality traits that were already there. That has been a huge thing that's influenced everything that I do with all of my time and attention today. Would, would you say, Colin, that that represents a shift from an ego-based perspective to one, uh, to a perspective that more includes the, the highest good of all? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, that you still, and I, I'm not sure I would even use the word ambition, but uh, you still have a great deal of energy, and you used to focus that energy on wanting to make money um, and learn, but, you know, a lot of it was ambition to to get ahead, so to speak, in a certain level. And I, I hear you, what you sounds like you're saying now is that you want to help everybody, not just yourself, and that you want to use that energy in a very conscious way to promote the evolution of, of the whole. Right, yeah. It, it's a difference in motive power, I think. Like maybe it's still uh, a train that I'm riding on, but rather than fueling it with one thing, it's fueled by another thing today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would would you agree with that characterization of it uh, about moving uh, away from being more dominated by the ego? Uh, and do you know what I mean by that? That that focus on ourselves and what we can accomplish or acquire. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is a pretty good fit. I, I think it's possible in a way to go. I, I know a lot of people who have the the best of intentions for the world and but then they push it in a direction where then they don't take care of themselves and so the way that I tend to look at that is making sure that I have my own foundation really solid so that I can that I'm sure that I am good and healthy and in a mentally good place so that then I can continue to generate a whole lot of excess and then I can do whatever I want with that excess and in general that means trying to put it out into the world and trying to make sure that other people who maybe don't have as firm a platform are able to solidify that and get where they want to be. Well and it's so interesting that you're bringing that up you know another one of the slightly uh, different perspectives that we have in the inner revolution is that what's for the highest good of all has got to include you. Mm, That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and and you're so right that so many people really end up sacrificing the, their own lives in one way or another, and and you know to be honest that can be ego based too because they want to look good by doing all this philanthropic work, and they end up not really doing what's for the highest good of all because they're not including themselves. So I I'm glad that you are including yourself. I think that's a very healthy 
way of looking at it. One of the things that I loved about when I was, you know, reading excerpts from your books and reading your blogs, and, you know, I really enjoyed all of those, by the way, and intend to continue reading them, um, but was the was one of the, I think it was a blog about money and how money, making money easier to flow in different directions. Do you remember that? Um, you know, how making it easier for people to support one another's endeavors. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, microtransactions and things of that nature. Yes, yes. I, I don't know if we need to go there, but I that <laughs> that touched me as one of the things that you're offering that supports you and supports the whole. Right, yeah. I think that this is another thing uh, about the tools that we have available today, all these technological uh, gimmicks and, and devices that could very well distract us from what's important, or they can close the gap so that creators and consumers are able to be closer together without as many middlemen required in between. And consequently, the price of everything goes down, but we're also able to better support the people who are creating things. And I think we have the potential for that now. It's just a matter of utilizing what we have really intentionally, doing it on purpose, with a purpose, to try to ensure that we can uh, continue to support people who are creating things that we find value in without looking at everything through the lens of what we've come to expect in the, the 20th and 21st century thus far, which is more of the money going toward the, the in-betweens, the, the middlemen in-between, the, the creator and consumer. Right. And you know what I like about that example, for instance, Colin, is um, I, maybe I'm just making this up, but I'm imagining that, <laughs> well, I'm imagining that your choice to live so minimally and be able to focus on particular things because your mind isn't cluttered with a million things has allowed you to come up with ideas like that, for instance. I can't imagine that you would have come up with that idea had you been you know, working in your branding studio all day. <laughs> it certainly helps to have more than four hours of sleep a night. And <laughs> it, it, it absolutely helps too to, to have, you know, 17 hour bus rides through the middle of nowhere, <laughs> during which time you don't really have any choice but to think about things like that. Well, and how, how fabulous. I mean, that is creativity. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a lifestyle that incentivizes it. And this is another one of those trade-offs that uh, make me warn people when they, they see the Instagram photos and a life of travel looks very sexy through, from certain angles. But there's also a whole lot of downtime and, and a whole lot of those other trade-offs that I mentioned in terms of everything being non-standard and relationships, you have to approach them from a different direction. And there are the, the periodic multi-day bus rides to the middle of nowhere. Right. Right, and and no internet for you for you to be perusing, you know, Facebook and Twitter on those bus rides, probably. Right, which is in in different ways both limiting and liberating. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, what's another? I know I asked you what what's the the most significant way you've changed internally, and I loved your answer. I'd like you to give us an example of some of the other things that you have learned about yourself and that that you can share with our listeners. I've come to realize that the way the way that we spend our time is so vitally important, and, and this is kind of like one of those things that seems like greeting card wisdom at first mm-hmm, like it's very mm-hmm. easy to say like mm-hmm. time is valuable it's the only resource you can't get more of like it's very easy to say that 
and then go back to doing things exactly the way that you were doing them before and, and to think, yeah, I'm totally going to change things. And then, you know, to take that one spare hour that you have a day, not to finish that book that you've been meaning to write, but to watch Netflix there, there's a time and a place, I think for Netflix, this is another one of those tools that is miraculous in some ways, but mm-hmm. it's a stand in your way if you misuse it. But to me, particularly the more I've upset the way I was doing things before and had to rebuild it from scratch in a lot of ways, I've realized that there's so many different ways to build a house. And you really do want to build a lifestyle, a house, uh, to use that analogy, in ways that fit your habits. And so some people will want big, sprawling, 30,000 square feet things with an indoor gym and a swimming pool. Some people will want like a little tiny hut with a lot of outdoors and with no electricity so they can get closer to nature. Some people want one that's on wheels. You can you can build your home or your life in all of these different ways, but you don't want to build it from somebody else's schematics just because that's what's easiest and those blueprints are on hand. Even though you have to draw your own blueprints and then you have to build your own custom frame home uh, to figure out what you actually want and what you actually believe and what your priorities are and then to construct something based on that so that you can spend more of your time doing the things that you actually want to do and spend more of yourself too, more of your energy, more of your waking hours and the the calories turned into energy that you have to spend each day. that you really, really want to be careful where you put those things. Uh, there's a lot of consequences to not putting them in the right place. And a lot of the societal woes that I see, like not just in the U.S., but all over the world, mm-hmm. there's different um, senses of despair about very common things mm-hmm. that are the consequence of this, I think. Just misallocated resources of this type that if you shape things correctly, if you spend your time wisely, then they, they're really not an issue. Can you imagine, Colin, can you imagine if we all got this lesson? (laughs) If we got it from a young age? Exactly. And we really were the architects of our own lives to whatever degree we, you know, we are impacted by the society, of course, and, you know, whether or not global warming, you know, makes everything a catastrophe. But within the parameters allowed, you know, to be the architects of our own lives and to have everyone one using their time that way and and giving themselves free time to think about things and think about alternative resolutions to some of our biggest problems and to know that we're all one and to know that we are accountable for how we treat each other i mean it's just it's mind-boggling how different our world could be if we were not dominated by greed (laughs) yeah it's hard to say exactly what it would look like but i i think that would be uh given the opportunity and in who knows the way things are going because we have all these miraculous new potential tools that we can use and because we're becoming more aware of each other even across vast oceans and across uh Uh, politically mandated borders, I I think we may have the opportunity to at least see what a light version of that might be. And and I think it would be really interesting to see what would happen. Well, and I, you know, you're such a a wonderful inspiration in that way. And, you know, I I hope that I know you've inspired many people. I mean, the two guys, I don't remember their names that call themselves the minimalists credit you for, for their 
inception and I know you've inspired many 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 more people and you know you're inspiring me so I, <laughs> thank you. you know I really want to thank you for being on the show today um, we need to talk about what we're going to do next week and then we'll come back in case you have a you know a last 60 second synopsis you would like to leave our listeners with but I want to just say that we love you we're so happy to have you on the show and I just love what you're doing and I appreciate your courage and your willingness to just keep putting it out there and like I said I I, can you right now before I forget will you give us the ways to contact you yeah, well, my my main book author page is colin.io. The blog is xllifestyle.com. I have a podcast called Let's Know Things, and I'm pretty much everywhere on social media at Colin is my name. Wonderful. So please make note of that, and we will follow you around the world. Todd, can you tell us what we're doing next week? Sure. I thought it was so cool because it's really related. Um How to change behavior, your own and others. It's not what you think. A conversation with Cassandra Viten, president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences on the science of worldview transformation. And why I say that, it sounds like you had a worldview transformation, Colin. (laughs) Most of the work being done toward changing how people relate to the environment and social justice is well-intentioned, but ends up being ineffective or worse, counterproductive. Achieving achieving true lasting changes in behavior, it turns out, requires changing our worldviews so the new action becomes part of who we are. But if you've ever tried to change a worldview or pattern of behavior in yourself or another person, you know it's quite an effort. Cassandra Viten, president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, along with her colleagues, has been studying the science of behavior change for years. She'll join us to discuss the research and how it's being applied in working with people all around the world. If you're someone committed to bringing about sustainability and justice in your life and for the planet, if you want to be able to communicate more effectively and be a more effective change agent in the world, you'll want to hear this conversation. Thanks, Todd. Mm -hmm. So back to you, Colin. Thank you again for being with us. And is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners as we close? I would remind everybody just to remember, even though it sounds a little bit morbid, to to remember you've got only one life to live and a very finite amount of years within that life. So there's no takesy-backsies, no second time around, and (laughs) anything that you want to accomplish has to be done now, and and allow that to guide you. It'll look different for everybody. I I don't want to tell anybody that they, they should do any one particular thing, but allowing yourself to recognize that finitude is a really great guide uh, to to guide you toward the things that you should be doing today, tomorrow, the next day, and so on. Thank you awesome. so much, Colin. I, I That's just a great way to close our show is that remember, this is your life and make it count. And thank you so much for being with us again. And thank you, Todd, as always, for being my supportive co-host. And we will see you next week. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.